Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with me, Susie Chase. Hi, my name is Kat O'Dell, and my new book just came out. It's called Day Drinking, and it's 50 cocktails for a fellow buzz. You're a longtime contributing editor for Eater.com, and you've written for Vogue.com, Tea the New York Times Style Magazine, Bon Appetit, Condé Nast Traveler, Food and Wine, Tasting Table, Eldecor.com, Food Network Magazine, and many more. And if that's not enough, you have a new book out called Day Drinking. Tell us about Day Drinking. Day Drinking is a collection of recipes from some of the top bartenders in the U.S. and a couple abroad in London. And it's recipes that celebrate low-alcohol drinks. So instead of basing recipes on foolproof spirits like traditional cocktails, day drinking embraces beer and wine and other alcohols like sherry, vermouth, and amaro. So rather than having a cocktail with hats, which has maybe one and a half to two shots of liquor, and sometimes even more, this has about half a shot. So some of the cocktails do use foolproof spirits, but um, significantly less than you would use in a cocktail. So if a cocktail is lower in alcohol, should we assume that it's less calories too? So here's the thing. If you're looking at the amount of calories in liquor um, based on percentage of alcohol, the lower the alcohol percentage in the, in the alcohol, yes, lower, the fewer the calories. However, end of the day, it's really about the other ingredients in the drink as well. So you can have a drink that has a lower proof spirit, but if you're putting extra sugar in or extra food, it can technically have more calories. So not necessarily. But if you're looking specifically just at the booze component, then yes, it is, that, that would be true. Do these cocktails pair better with food? I think so. From my own experience, I've had so many tasting menus that pair you know, of course, wine and different beverages. Now the evolution of the, of the beverage pairing isn't necessarily restricted to wine. But um, from my experience, when you're drinking a foolproof spirit, it kind of blasts out your taste buds. and You can't really try the food as well. So in my personal opinion, I do think that lower-proof uh, cocktails do pair better with food. You grew up in America with European parents. How did that influence your ideas about drinking? Food and wine has always been really important for my parents, and that's something that they instilled in myself and my brother at a really young age. Um, I started drinking wine when I was, I mean, not drinking, I shouldn't say drinking, but I started tasting wine probably when I was about 10 years old, just because my, my dad um, likes to say develop a palate. Um, so my parents, just they have an affinity for uh, food and beverages as well, and so that impacted me as far as Alcohol was never contraband, so I was never the kid that was out necessarily getting so drunk, you know, they sort of, like, can't make it home, and then they get in trouble with their parents. And then beyond that, I think because alcohol was never a big deal in my family, and I didn't, and it wasn't, it wasn't really um, a restricted drink by any means, um, even when I was under 21, I, I sort of appreciated the flavor of, let's say, wine, as opposed to the idea of just drinking to get drunk. That's something that I've always considered and something that, for somebody that loves food as much as I do, the flavor is just as, for me, actually, it's far more important than getting, just straight up getting drunk. What's the difference between a session and a low ABV alcohol by volume cocktail? So session drinks, um, you can look to session beers. That's a term that was started for uh, beer that was lower in alcohol, the idea being that you could drink more in a session. So you can apply the exact same idea to cocktails. So these are drinks that you can drink um, 
more, you can drink more cocktails in a shorter span of time. Session beers, session cocktails, exactly the same idea. I've noticed a shift on cocktail menus to include lower proof selections. As far as cocktail culture, we're living in a world that's far more sophisticated in terms of drinks, and bartenders are trying to be creative beyond traditional foolproof spirits, vodka, gin, whiskey. And I think that um, lower proof alcohol liquors, which are now more than ever available in the U.S., if you look to, let's say, Italy, you have more Amari, you have more aperitif wine. So we have more product available in the country and recently available, too. Um, and because there are more of these bottles that bartenders now have access to, they're able to get creative with drinks in new ways. And I think that that is largely leading to a lot more um, lower-proof drinks. Something that I've personally noticed as a restaurant editor is that back in 2013, so I was the editor of Eater LA for a long time, and one of the first places in Los Angeles that I remember stumbling upon low alcohol drinks was at a place in Venice called Salt Air. And they didn't have, the owners of that didn't have a full, full liquor license. And so they, had, they, they were able to legally sell beer and wine. And rather than just offering beer and wine, Brian Butler, who developed their cocktail program, wanted to, he's, he's, incredibly, he's incredibly talented behind the bar, and he wanted to um, offer something a little bit different. And I remember walking into that restaurant before, the, before it opened, and he tasted me on a bunch of his cocktails that he had based on beer and wine, and they were just incredible and delicious, and I was so impressed. And that was really the first restaurant where I, I um, first tried like a proper low-alcohol drink that wasn't, you know, a mimosa or michelada, which are local drinks that have been around for a long time. And then from there, a restaurant also in L.A., in Santa Monica, called Farm Shop, when they first opened, they also did have a full liquor license. And they started off with beer and wine. And there I had this really wonderful French aperitif cocktail um, that was based on chilled Pinot Noir and cassis syrup. Also so incredible. And since then, the trend has just grown. There's bars now in New York that have entire cocktail programs devoted to low ABV. So... I just think that there's so many instances when people would want to be drinking cocktails that have less alcohol, more so for flavor, um, than about getting totally toasted. And I think largely the sophistication of the cocktail movement and the access to more of these lower alcohol spirits is really helping. What are the main types of alcohol that we can find in low ABV cocktails? You can find foolproof spirits. You can find vodka and whiskey. But when you're using those, you're going to use a lot less. So I have, for example, a cocktail in my book that calls for half an ounce of whiskey as opposed to a traditional cocktail, which is probably called for somewhere between one and a half ounces to two ounces. Um, but for the most part, you find beer and wine-based drinks. And then beyond those two, you would find... I'm at least noticing as far as trends. I've seen a lot of vermouth, um, other aperitif wines, and then Amari. So there's so many more Amari available in the U.S. than there ever have been. And I think the bitter flavor profile lends well to cocktails. And so it just offers bartenders another, another option to play around with and get creative. When you're making a cocktail, what are your easy go-to garnishes? Ooh, you know, I use a lot of, I have a lot of, I'm working on this other book called Unicorn Food, and I have so many different, like, like play around garnishes. I have a ton of dried flower petals. I sometimes use that. One of my actual favorites for a champagne cocktail, um, I get this hibiscus. They're basically candied hibiscus flowers in this, like, really pretty pink syrup. And I like to take a coupe glass, fill it with champagne, add one of these hibiscus flowers, and it just basically floats in the champagne, and it's so pretty. Beyond that, um, I think for in terms of garnishes, they should always tie into the cocktail. You shouldn't just have something that's completely random. So whenever I'm making fresh fruit cocktails at home, I try to be creative with whatever fruit is already in the drink and use that as a garnish in some way. 
Where can we get those hibiscus flowers? They're sold online for sure. And then I also believe, I don't think Williams-Sonoma has them. Maybe Sir La Table, but you can definitely get them online, and I'm pretty sure Amazon has them. Now, I'm dying to hear about your trip to Mexico, in particular Noma. Tell us about your, yeah. some of your meals and drinks at Noma, Mexico. But first, sure. did you read um, Pete Wells last week in the New York Times that said I, he's I did. refusing to review his, it? His non-review of the, rev- of the review. It was the <laughs> it was best review, review of all time. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I understand. I understand the point he was trying to make. You know, as a reviewer, you are trying to provide an opinion on a restaurant in the, in the, in the sort of hopes that, or the assumption that others will go and dine there and you can't really get into them. Mexico. That being said, I also think that Rene is such an important chef and he's going to continue to have pop-ups around the world. And of course, Noma is going to reopen. And so just having, an opinion on what was happening in Tulum is worthwhile. Um, I enjoyed my meal a lot. I love Tulum. I love the jungle. It was really great to have such inspired cuisine in the middle of nowhere. Um, personally, I feel like my, my meal at Noma in Copenhagen was, was better. Um, but, you know, he, given the limited time, given the fact that they built an entire kitchen in the jungle um, and the ingredients, you know, it was, it was really impressive and super creative, um, really innovative, and overall I was, I was quite impressed with the meal. Did you find any cocktails that you had never heard of or tasted before? There was this, like, green tomato mezcal that they served. I actually, you know, I didn't so much care for the beverage pairing for that meal. That was probably my least favorite part. Um, whenever I'm in Mexico, I drink a ton of mezcal just because I love, love, love mezcal. So it's always, you know, for me, finding new varietals that I haven't tried, um, and my go-to cocktail is usually um, a salty mezcal margarita with very little sugar. So I drank a lot of those when I was out there. <laughs> Do you think the craft cocktail world is oversaturated at this point? I mean, you know, there's so many bartenders that take themselves so seriously. I know. And so I'm sort of over the stuffy. You know, I'm, I'm over the stuffiness that's associated with the cocktail world. Um and I don't know, for me, I just, I wish that there was less sugar in cocktails. I think that drinks for the most part are overly sweetened. And for example, in Mexico, when you have such great access to produce and, and seasonal and just ingredients that are at their peak of ripeness, there's really no need to add extra sugar to those drinks. And so I find myself at bars for the most part, just asking for, you know, whatever the cocktail is, minus any simple syrup or agave. End of the day, I love cocktails. Uh, and so I'm excited to see, you know, as the cocktail world, as the culinary world progresses and as the drinks world progresses, um, I'm always keen to see what happens. And I also love discovering whether it's new spirits or applications of spirits, um, more product that we get available in the U.S. So it's always interesting for me to see what's happening. And that's also why I travel so much. I love to experience food and, and beverages in other parts of the world. And it's an opportunity to learn about the other, other ways that people apply ingredients um, and just other ingredients that are available in other parts of the world. On pages 58 and 59, you're pictured at Tacombe on Bleecker Street in New York City, down the street from me, uh, where I tried out their michelada, which was actually more like a michelada negra because they used dark Mm -hmm. beer. So describe a michelada for us. So a michelada is a beer-based cocktail. in Mexico, you'll add taijin, which is sort of this, like, chili spice mixer. I personally love a salty michelada with a lot of lime juice. I really like a lot of acidity. Um, 
with tomato, other you can you know, there's so many ingredients that you can really add to a michelada. I love umami, so I like adding tomato, or I've had dashi, uh, like a tomato dashi added to a michelada. Um, a, a fun kind of like hack that you can do at home if you want to make a michelada is beer with salsa. <laughs> Pop that in your blender and then top it off with a little more beer. Um, but in general, my palate skews savory certainly for cocktails, and so michelada is definitely one of my favorites and heavy on the acid. Love, 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 love lime juice. I brought the book with me, and the waiter took it around and showed everyone. They all went crazy. Oh, my God, cute. They were I like, I remember Aww. this photo shoot. <laughs> Oh, yay. It that was, was just a perfect venue. It worked out so well. And a bunch of my best friends are all in that, were all at that shoot, so it was great. So your next cookbook is going to be called Unicorn yeah. Food. Can we get a little yeah. preview? Definitely. So Unicorn Food is plant-based recipes devoid of sugar and gluten. Um, for me, it was inspired by living in Los Angeles for a long time and moving back to New York and not having access to a lot of the clean, healthy foods that were readily accessible in L.A. And so... Couldn't really find anything in New York, um, so I just took it upon myself to start making all this, all these um, different foods at home. And you know, I, I end up eating so much restaurant food for my job, and it's really a balance at the end of the day. So when I'm not traveling um, and I'm not at restaurants, I'm at home and I basically just eat vegetables. That was really what inspired Unicorn Food. And I'm a very visual person, and I, I have an art background. I was an art history major in college, and so color has always been really important to me. Um, and in the foods that I'm creating, color serves a purpose. It's not just um, adding a color to a dish necessarily, but there has to be a function with the flavor and also the nutritional value. So colored foods are so much more healthful than white foods. So that's also why I look to color in creating dishes. So yeah, I'm really, really excited about that book. It'll when, be out in about a year. Yeah. I was just going to ask, when is it going to come out? So 2018? Yeah, yeah. Spring, spring 2018. It's slated to be published, to be released. Where can we find you on the web? Kat, K-A-T underscore Odell, O-D-E-L-L, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. I think we should all get a mellow buzz. Thanks, Kat, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Subscribe in iTunes and follow me on Instagram at Cookery by the Book, on Twitter at I am Susie Chase. Thank you so much for listening to Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you.